0: Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode is titled, How Close? One of the things that modern Christians want to know is how close their church is to the primitive church of the 1st and 2nd centuries. Congregations and entire movements claim that their particular expression of the faith is closest to the original. So, what were early church services like? Where do they meet and, well, what do they do? Until the end of the second century, Christians met for services in private homes, deserted buildings, caves, near the graves of martyrs, and in catacombs. Catacombs were a common feature of many cities of the empire. Besides their primary use as burial places, they were frequent hiding places for refugees, smugglers, and groups that wanted to meet away from the watchful eye of the authorities. Rome's catacombs were a massive subterranean tunnel system. Jesus' followers used these places to meet because during the first centuries, they were mostly drawn from the poorer classes of society and couldn't afford a unique place devoted solely to their worship. Their meetings were often banned, requiring that they meet in secret. Another reason they tended to meet in locations away from the busy streets was because of the prevalence of lewd graffiti, ubiquitous in Roman cities. Graffiti isn't a recent phenomenon. It has a long and storied history. Much of the graffiti encountered in Rome's streets was political cartoons and commentary, but it was also body and offensive to the sensitive morality of many Christians. So, they looked for places outside the city to meet where pornography wasn't scrawled on nearby walls. One of the points made by the church fathers known as the apologists those who answered the attacks of pagan critics, was that Christians had neither temples nor altars because their religion was fundamentally spiritual and needed no place for ritual. Their critics jumped on this lack of religious place as evidence of the silliness of the faith. After all, if God was worthy of worship, they reasoned, wouldn't he require a building? Origen replied eloquently to this attack by saying that Christians were living statues of the Holy Spirit and that each human being was immensely more glorious than any temple made of mere stone. In a significant remark by Justin Martyr, made to a Roman governor, he wrote that, quote, Christians assemble wherever it's convenient, because their god is not like the gods of the heathen, enclosed in space, but is invisibly present everywhere, unquote. The homes early Christians met in had to have been large enough to accommodate a congregation. Based on what we know about Roman architecture, such a home had a dining hall providing the best place to assemble. In the center of the long wall, an elevated chair was set where the leader of the service led the assembly. Near him was a simple table upon which the elements of the Lord's Supper were set. If they met in catacombs, a similar arrangement was made. The early Church Father Tertullian was one of the first to speak of, quote, going to church, using the word church for the place where a congregation met. Clement of Alexandria, who lived at about the same time as Tertullian, makes reference in his writings to how the word church meant both the people and the place they met. About A.D. 230, the Roman emperor Alexander Severus granted the followers of Jesus the right to have a building in Rome dedicated exclusively to their worship. What's interesting about this is that the loudest hue and cry against the church using its own building came from the tavern keepers. The church was going to be located in a place rife with taverns, and it meant that some of them would have to be relocated to build the church. They also didn't like the moral influence that a church would bring. This imperial permission to build a church greatly encouraged other cities around the empire to allow the fast-growing Christian sect to build more facilities dedicated exclusively to holding their services. The persecutions of Decius and Diocletian at the end of the 3rd and beginning of the 4th century put a hold on such construction and saw many of the buildings that had been built either torn down or converted to pagan use. Diocletian began his persecution in 303 by tearing down the huge church in his capital at Nicomedia. Yet by the beginning of the 4th century, Rome had some 40 church buildings. While we know the building of churches took place in the last half of the 3rd century, we have little idea of what they looked like. That changes with the acceptance of Christianity by the Emperor Constantine. It's reasonable to assume the earlier churches were in some way similar to the basilicas that Constantine built for both civil and religious use. They were rectangular with a proportion of 3 by 4 A semicircular niche lay at the narrow end opposite the main door. The niche was the place where the elevated seat was set for their lead pastor, also known as the bishop. Ranging down the aisles of the main hall was a colonnade where people gathered in smaller groups, or if the central floor of the nave was full, they could spill into during the service. Christians met to hold their weekly service on Sunday, which they called the Lord's Day because it's the day of the week that Jesus rose. The first Christians were Jews who zealously observed the Sabbath on Saturday but also gathered on Sunday, the first day of the week, so a work day early in the morning before work began. As the church grew in the Gentile world, the church gathered only on Sunday. And This is confirmed by ample evidence in the writings of Ignatius, Justin Martyr, and the Didache. The first Gentile believers didn't celebrate Sunday as a kind of Christian Sabbath, ceasing from work as they would do later. That would have been impossible for the slaves of heathen masters who made up a large portion of the church in the early decades. It wasn't until the time of Constantine that engaging in labor on the Lord's Day was frowned on. What also was put under the ban was theatrical entertainments. Greek and Roman theaters were, more often than not, places of grotesque lewdness, not fitting for the moral sensitivity of believers. In light of the often contentious debates marking modern believers, it's instructive that the Church Fathers never saw the Christian observance of Sunday as a continuation of the Jewish Sabbath. Sunday wasn't regarded as a Christian version of obeying the Fourth Commandment's call to keep the Sabbath day. The Fathers do, however, recognize as implicit in the teaching of Scriptures the call to regular worship, and that meant specifying a day each week for gathering to worship. Ignatius, who we've already seen as one of the more important of the church fathers, specifically contrasts the Jewish Sabbath with the Christian Sunday, saying that the prior is replaced by the later. But he makes pains to point out that making Sunday the Lord's day is not a fulfillment of the fourth commandment. Rather, Ignatius sees the fourth commandment as fulfilled in the perpetual rest of believers in the death and the resurrection of Christ. These weren't the only days of the week that Christians practiced specific actions as evidence of their faith. While Sunday celebrated the resurrection, Wednesdays and Fridays commemorated Jesus' suffering and death, and this was memorialized by partial fasts until 3 p.m. When Christians gathered on Sunday, there were certain things they did that constituted a regular service. This order of service evolved over time, but became a fairly uniform practice by the 4th century throughout the churches. In the earliest years, a portion of the Old Testament scripture was read, and someone with skill at public speaking would then explain and apply the passage. Several short such passages and homilies could be given, depending on how many skilled speakers there were. It didn't take long before one of the elders was recognized as the God-ordained teacher and leader of the congregation, who was designated as their pastor-bishop. Soon, the documents of the New Testament, as well as writings of the Apostolic Fathers, were also read and studied. With the emergence of the bishop as the leader of a local church, the sermon became one of the primary elements in the service. We have the record of an ancient sermon delivered by an anonymous pastor around AD 140. And the sermon's not very good, but the way he closes the message is interesting for the simple reason that it doesn't sound all that different from what tens of thousands of pastors say in their churches every week to this day. It ends thus, quote, To the only God invisible, the Father of truth, who sent forth unto us the Savior and Prince of immortality, through whom also he made manifest unto us the truth and the heavenly life. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Prayer was a major part of early church services. Since many of the letters of the apostolic fathers include their prayers, we get a sense of what prayers were like in the churches of that time. What's remarkable about them is how filled with scripture they are. Their prayers were based on the revelation of God in the Bible and our appeals to his promises. They prayed for the suffering, for the needy, travelers, prisoners. They pleaded with God to save the lost, confess their sins, and ask for the preservation of their unity. Also notable is their emphasis on praying for the emperor, for governors, and for all those in authority in the civil realm. These prayers weren't anathemas. That is, they weren't calls for divine displeasure to fall in fiery bolts on pagan heads. No, they were prayers for blessing, peace, wisdom, and courage. When they prayed, they stood with hands stretched out toward heaven. And the church sang a lot. Their songbook was the Psalms. Besides the Psalter, they developed hymns, which were songs expressing Christian belief and theology the man or woman who finds rote memorization difficult will often easily pick up a song and be able to sing several verses from memory. So, singing was a way to both worship and to learn theology. For a period about 350 years, from the mid-2nd century to the close of the fifth, some churches divided their service into two parts. The first was open to all and was aimed at educating candidates for baptism. There was singing, prayer, a sermon, Then, those who had not been baptized were dismissed and the doors closed. Those members who had been baptized would then engage in more prayer, singing, and finally, the celebration of communion. Participation at the Lord's table was prohibited to the unbaptized. Dividing the service into two parts was a minority view that was refuted by some church fathers. Justin Martyr, in his first defense of the faith to the emperor, marks no distinction for those who could celebrate communion. The growing hierarchical spirit that took root in the church from the mid-2nd century on, and advanced so strongly by Ignatius, seems to also have encouraged the dualism that developed in the church, a dualism that divided the congregation between candidates and the elect, with baptism being the dividing line. Another factor that encouraged the development of a second, closed, and secretive part of the service was the challenge that was presented by the Gnostics. The second part of the service, closed as it was to initiates, began to be used in some churches as a time for instruction in what came to be considered deeper spiritual lessons. The Gnostics had their secret knowledge, which proved so appealing to many, and so some churches developed their own brand of esoteric knowledge things that were thought to be appropriate only for those who had been baptized and could regularly partake of communion. Those who advocated this secretive aspect of church life defended it by quoting from Matthew 7, where Jesus warned his followers against giving what was holy to the dogs and casting pearls before swine. They claim that it's what the apostles meant when they wrote of the distinction of milk for babies, but meat for those of full age, and the difference between those who were carnal And the spiritual. Some historians hold that one reason for the secretive nature of some aspects of church meetings was the simple and practical need for modesty. Primitive baptism was full immersion. Since Christians often went directly from a service to work, well, they had to remove their clothing to be baptized, and that meant the need for privacy with men and women being separated. By the sixth century, the challenge of Gnosticism was passed and the church was no longer being persecuted. And so, with the pressure off, baptism, while still important, was endowed with less significance than it had possessed during the era of persecution when the problem of the lapsed framed so much of the debate. For all these reasons, the division of the service into two parts diminished until by the end of the 6th century, the vast majority of churches had just one service, though unbaptized members were told that they ought not partake of the Lord's table. Communion was the central event of each service. In that time, the Lord's table was called the Eucharist, a Greek word which means thanksgiving. This was the climax and conclusion of a church service. I quote from Justin Martyr's description, After the prayers, we greet one another with a brotherly kiss. Then bread and a cup with water and wine are handed to the bishop of the brethren. He receives them and offers praise, glory, and thanks to the Father of all, through the name of the Son and the Holy Spirit, For these his gifts. When he has ended the prayers and thanksgiving, the whole congregation responds, Amen. Upon this, the deacons, as we call them, give to each of those present some of the blessed bread and of the wine mingled with water and carrying it to the absent in their dwellings. Communion was celebrated at least weekly, and there's evidence in some places it was celebrated daily as Christians gathered early in the morning to pray, sing a song or two, take communion, and then disperse. They based this practice of daily communion on that part of the Lord's prayer, which says, give us this day our daily bread. In the earliest days of the church, they met on Sunday evening to share a common meal called the agape or the love feast. The last part of the meal, which we'd call the dessert, was the Lord's table. For them, it wasn't a dessert of sweets so much as it was the spiritual sweetness in communing with the Lord and one another. A kiss of fellowship was a part of this. Men would kiss other men on the cheek, as would the women to one another. This kiss was a dear and holy mark of the celebration of their spiritual unity and familial relationship. It also became the ground for abuse, as wine was a part of the common meal, and some drank a little more than they ought. Loosened inhibitions moved some to a, well, less than holy application of the kiss, when the pattern of male-to-male moved to -to male-to-female fellowship. The Apostle Paul addresses the abuse of the agape in writing to the Corinthians and in other letters reminds the church to keep the kiss holy. The bread used for communion was regular bread. The wine was mixed with water. The deacons handed each person a piece and they all drank from a common cup. When they ate, they stood. And when the service was finished, the deacons then took the elements to the homes of shut-ins and those who were in prison. Many of the Christians of North Africa took some of the communion bread home with them and then used it for private daily communion. As we end this episode, I want to express my appreciation for all who've reviewed the podcast on iTunes. For those who haven't yet, I invite you to head to the Facebook page to give the podcast a like and leave a comment on where you live. You can find it at Communio Sanctorum, History of the Christian Church. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.